This is Civic from the San Francisco Public Press. On this edition of Civic, we'll explain the six measures on San Francisco's November ballot. Prop A would inject funding into affordable housing. So when San Francisco says it's going to be a $600 million bond, what it's actually saying is is it's going to jumpstart a billion and a half dollars, basically, of development. Prop C would overturn a city moratorium on the sale of some vaping products. 17 to 20 percent of uh, teens nationally have vaped. That's far higher than the smoking rates. It's gotten to the point where the FDA called it an epidemic among teens. We'll also look at attacks on ride shares, money in elections, and more. I'm Laura Wenis, and this is Civic. As part of our coverage of the local election on November 5th, we're bringing you a description of each ballot proposition, along with some background and analysis. First, Proposition A. This is a proposal for the city to issue $600 million in bonds to build and preserve affordable housing, which is rented or sold at prices below the market rate. Affordable, in this case, means that the housing is managed by a city program or nonprofit that cannot charge more in rent or mortgage than what's affordable to certain income levels. The bond would fund housing for a wide range of incomes, topping out at 200% of the median income for the area. The biggest chunk, $220 million, is for about 1,000 new units of low-income housing, which is priced for individuals with annual incomes up to about $69,000 a year, or families of three with household annual incomes up to about $88,000 a year. It's important to note that this bond isn't only for building affordable housing, which takes years. It also funds the preservation and renovation of existing affordable housing. One aspect of that is infrastructure upgrades and repairs to the city's public housing communities. About $150 million will go to that. Another aspect is that San Francisco also sometimes buys, usually through a nonprofit, rent-controlled housing with long-term tenants, who are usually paying far below market rates. The city does this to keep the tenants from being evicted and to keep the units at below market rate rents after those tenants move on of their own accord. About $30 million of the money in this bond is allocated for those kinds of acquisitions or for repairs to such housing that has decayed. The bonds will be repaid through property taxes, $2 for every $100,000 the property is worth to start out, rising to about $12 for every $100,000 of worth by 2042. One opponent of the bond, the Libertarian Party of San Francisco, argues that this will actually end up raising the cost of living in San Francisco as landlords can pass up to half of those tax costs through to their tenants. For a $4 million residential building, let's say, with 10 units, that increase might add up to about $4 a year per unit, or $24 a year by 2042. San Francisco has for years added more jobs than it has built housing. The Budget and Legislative Analysts Office recently reported that between 2010 and 2018, the city added 8.5 new jobs for each housing unit produced. This report looked specifically at how well-paid those new jobs were and compared that with what kind of housing was built. The main takeaway? The ratio of new jobs to new homes is bad. The ratio of new low-income jobs to new low-income housing is much worse. From 2016 to 2018, one new unit of low- or moderate-cost housing was created for every 9.5 low- or moderate-wage jobs created in the city. Let's hear more about Proposition A, which would authorize a $600 million bond measure to create and preserve affordable housing in San Francisco. 
and hit those doors. We're going to talk to voters, and we're going to make sure they know how important this is to the future of San Francisco. We know we have a number of challenges, and the longer we wait to get this housing built, the more delay it is for so many people we know are struggling in San Francisco. San Francisco Mayor London Breed on the steps of City Hall on July 9th, the day the Board of Supervisors placed a bond measure on the November 5th ballot. At $600 million, the bond would be the largest in the city's history. It's allocated to a variety of housing needs. $150 million will go to restore and rebuild public housing. $220 million will go to build low-income housing. And there's also money set aside for the preservation of existing units to keep them livable and affordable. And set-asides for senior and teacher housing. We speak next with Fernando Martí, the co-director of the Council of Community Housing Organizations, nicknamed ChuChu. It's an alliance of 26 nonprofit and faith-based housing developers and advocates. He was among those advocating for the bond, and ChuChu helped shape the measure. I spoke with him in his South of Market office. So I wanted to ask you, um, just for your gut reaction as a person in this field, originally this was proposed as a $500 million bond to produce around 2,400 housing units. Now it's $600 million to produce about 2,700 housing units. Do you think that's feasible? Yes, and we worked really hard to try to get it uh, above the 500. You might remember that originally Supervisor Haney had suggested a billion-dollar housing bond 600 was the the final number that was worked out with a controller based on property tax revenue. But uh, we really need a much larger amount to meet the need that we've identified. One of the things we did as Choo Choo was to ask our developers about the projects that they currently have in the pipeline as well as their 5- and 10-year outlook for new projects in development. And based on that, we developed a whole list of projects by type and by geography that we wanted to see accomplished through not just the bond, but through other revenue measures. So we did a lot of work advocating for a much larger bond. At this point, I think the big win is not just around having this bond and presenting it to the voters in November. Mayor Breed has made a commitment to make a housing bond part of the capital plan for the city. So every year, the city publishes a 10-year capital plan that is an outlook of uh, future bonds, say, for parks and for emergency services and other things. Housing is now going to be incorporated as part of that. What we did not see was where in that 10 years the next housing bond would be. And so we're looking forward to working with the supervisors and with the mayor to, in our next capital plan, have a housing bond on a five-year schedule, similar to parks and to emergency services and other critical uses. And, you know, this is part of our city's infrastructure. For the city to function well, we need to house its workforce, and, um, and affordable housing should be you know, a key piece of that infrastructure development. I started by asking you about whether it's feasible to build 2,700-ish units of affordable housing, build or preserve, Mm -hmm. which are two different things. How many do we actually need? How does that fit into our housing crisis? San Francisco, like every city in California, has a general plan housing element. And within that, uh, every city is required to calculate how much housing 
they will or they, they set a goal of building for different income levels. In San Francisco right now, for low to moderate income, so everyone from seniors on fixed income to teachers, if we were to meet that need, and you know it's, it's an estimate, and it's probably even a low estimate, we should be building a little over 2,000 units of affordable housing every year. What's interesting is in, in those, those goals, San Francisco always exceeds the market rate goal, and we always produce less than half of the affordable goal. And that's typical for many cities. It's typical for the region. So that you know, just goes to, to show something about what gets built and what doesn't get built. Hello, my name is Sam Moss. I'm the executive director of Mission Housing Development Corporation. Um, what we do is we build, own, and run 100% affordable, otherwise known as low-income housing in San Francisco. The city has promised as many as 2,700 housing units will be funded by this bond. But with an affordable unit in the city costing more than half a million dollars to build, if you do the math, that doesn't pencil out. But Sam describes the bond more like seed money. The way we build affordable housing is San Francisco provides one of every $3, actually, that it takes to build affordable housing. So when San Francisco says it's going to be a $600 million bond, what it's actually saying is is it's going to jumpstart a billion and a half dollars, basically, of development. A lot of it depends on what, what courage our leaders have and how much we can organize to start building on the two-thirds of the land in San Francisco that we haven't historically. It's great that we have the shipyard and Treasure Island and the Bayview, and we're developing, of course, in the mission and everything, but there's a lot of land on the west side of San Francisco, and those funds need to be dispersed with a geographic equity that they demand. When it comes to turning $1 in bonds into $3 for housing, you can think of the money from the bond as the seed money, funneled into a series of increasingly complex deals where developers leverage state funds, bank loans, tax credits, and tax credit swaps, which are sold to giant corporations to reduce their tax bill, all of which together can potentially triple the amount of money that nonprofit developers can use to build affordable housing. Sam Moss tells us how that all works. When an affordable housing developer builds a building, what we do is we say to San Francisco, all right, we got this land, and we think it's going to cost, let's, let's say, $60 million for, for nice round purposes. The developer goes to the city, and they say, okay, we got our plans. We're ready to design it. We got our construction estimates. It's going to cost $60 million. The city gives the developer what's basically a letter saying that they're going to provide $20 million of it. With that $20 million letter, basically, we go to the state of California, and we ask for what are called tax-exempt bonds. And we do that to the tune of about half of what's left of, of the remaining you know, uh, $40 million. Um, and so when we get a tax-exempt bond from the state of California, which is basically like right alone from the homeowners, we sell it to uh, like Bank of America, a big bank. That bank takes that bond and they do whatever they do on the investment market with it. But in exchange for the bond that they get, which is taxed, you know, it's a tax-exempt bond, so it's good for their revenue offset. They give us a construction loan, basically. And we use the construction loan for the majority of the cost to actually build the building. Lastly, once we get that, once we get those bonds, we can do what are called apply for tax credits. And there's two kinds of tax credits. The most common one is called a 4% tax credit. And essentially what that is, is because we're a nonprofit, 
we can get a certain amount of money. It's usually about 30% of the value of the building equivalent in tax credits. And then we, again, sell those tax credits on an open market. There's tax credit investors like Google is one of the biggest buyers of tax credits. The larger the company, the larger the capital gains, the more need for tax credit. And the reason that they like to do that, and then they give us literally equity. We get millions of dollars over the course of 10 years to kind of offset the construction costs and help us with running the building. And then there's like, no joke, there's like five other sources that are like smaller and they offset things. You know, there's cap and trade money. And so we cobble it all together. And that's where the, that's why the bond is important because the bond is the way for the city of San Francisco to jumpstart the asking for of all those monies. Proposition A has many supporters in city government and with community developers. Organized opposition comes from the San Francisco Republican and Libertarian parties. We reached out to the local GOP for their argument against the bond, but hadn't received an answer by the time of this recording. One argument against the measure comes from the Libertarian Party. Here's their argument from the November 2019 audio voter information pamphlet from the Department of Elections. Proposition A is yet another band-aid on the self-inflicted wounds of San Francisco politics. Rather than addressing the root of the problem and getting out of the way, cronies in City Hall want to trick voters into granting them even more power and greater control over our lives. Housing in this city is the most expensive in the nation because they make it that way. Simply put, affordable housing programs are not an incentive to build more housing. They are a disincentive for developers to build, period. Such programs force developers to adhere to strict requirements, which limit their ability to make money, causing them to avoid projects in San Francisco in the first place. If the board wants to increase the supply of housing and decrease the cost of living in San Francisco, all they need to do is allow developers to build. In fact, this measure will increase the overall cost of living in San Francisco because it is paid for with property tax increases, up to half of which will be passed on to tenants. This is a $600 million program, which will end up costing taxpayers over a billion once all is said and done, and the money will be poured into making more San Franciscans dependent on local government to get by. Affordable housing programs, in reality, make housing less affordable. We all want to increase the housing supply, but this measure amounts to a billion-dollar drop in the bucket. It's time to tear off a Band-Aid and allow the city's wounds to heal. For San Francisco, that means getting government out of the way so that we, the people, can build the city we want to live in. We urge you to vote no on Proposition A's power grab. Libertarian Party of San Francisco. That was the argument against Proposition A from the Libertarian Party of San Francisco, as heard on the November 2019 audio voter information pamphlet from the Department of Elections. Next, Prop B. This is a name change to an established city department, the Department of Aging and Adult Services, ostensibly to signal to people with disabilities that this department also exists to serve them. It would be renamed the Department of Disability and Aging Services. It's not just a name change, though. It also includes a change to the requirements for three of the seven members of the Aging and Adult Services Commission. If the measure is approved, one of the members of the commission, to be named the Disability and Aging Services Commission, would have to be at least 60 years old. One would have to have a disability, and one would have to be a veteran. For context, people over the age of 60 make up 20% of the city's population, and that percentage is likely to grow and an estimated 10% of San Franciscans live with a disability. No organized opposition has come forward against this measure, and it's unlikely to cost the city much money.
We'll continue our overview of the measures on the November ballot in a moment. I'm Laura Wenis. You're listening to Civic. KSFP would like to thank the awesome, forward-thinking institutional supporters of the San Francisco Public Press, including the San Francisco Foundation, the James Irvine Foundation, the Reva and David Logan Foundation, Craig Newmark Philanthropies, the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation, the Ethics and Excellence in Journalism Foundation, the Fund for Nonprofit News at the Miami Foundation, the Fund for Investigative Journalism, the California Endowment, the Center for Cultural Innovation, the Institute for Nonprofit News, and the local independent online news publishers. This is KSFP-LP San Francisco, 102.5 FM. Welcome back to Civic, where we're looking into the measures on San Francisco's November 5th ballot. One of the most complicated measures is Prop C. This is one of those ballot measures where you have to read the wording very carefully and know a lot of background information to understand what you're voting for. To be clear, a yes vote in this case would overturn and replace existing e-cigarette regulations in San Francisco. A no vote would be a vote to keep the restrictions the city already has in place. A word on what those restrictions specifically are. Right now, people who are 21 and over can buy e-cigarette products in San Francisco. Flavored tobacco products are banned across the board. More wide-reaching restrictions are set to go into effect in late January 2020. The Board of Supervisors passed a law in June suspending the sale of e-cigarettes until they complete an FDA review. Companies have until May 2020 to apply, and Juul, one of the biggest e-cigarette companies, recently pulled its candy and fruit flavors from the market while it waits for FDA evaluation. E-cigarette products can still be legally sold until either a year passes after their application or the FDA specifically denies them. That's why San Francisco's city attorney referred to the existing law as a moratorium rather than a ban. So Prop C would overturn that restriction on non-FDA-approved products. It would replace those regulations with restrictions on how much of certain products can be sold at a time. No more than two e-cigarette devices or five liquid nicotine cartridges at a time could be sold in a store— and no more than two e-cigarettes or 60 milliliters of nicotine juice, as it's known, per month online. Plus, it would prohibit advertising designed to appeal to kids, or even advertising on a platform with an audience of primarily under-21s. Keep that in mind later. There's more to unravel. Prop C, if passed, may repeal the flavored tobacco ban for e-cigarettes. May? It's a point of contention. Lawyers working against tobacco companies have raised the alarm about Prop C's language, saying it could actually undermine the flavored tobacco ban and prevent the city from regulating e-cigarettes later on. The coalition that was pushing Prop C said they had no intention of doing that. They even took the city to court over language in the city's voter information pamphlet saying that Prop C could target the flavored tobacco law. They lost, so the language stayed, at a judge's order. You should know that Juul, an e-cigarette company that was the main financial backer of Prop C, is under a lot of scrutiny right now. Its last CEO stepped down right after apologizing to parents of kids who are hooked on Juul products. The federal government has called the rampant use of vaping products among teens an epidemic. 
The National Youth Tobacco Survey found that more than 20% of teens reported using e-cigarettes last year, which is why so much of the language around Prop C is about kids and teens. The FDA also ordered Juul to stop making claims that its vaping products are safer than cigarettes. And remember how Prop C would restrict advertising for e-cigarettes? Well, the company also recently ended nearly all of its advertising in the U.S. The final chapter in this story is that Juul abruptly pulled its support for Proposition C, its own measure, in September, apparently at the behest of their new CEO. The company had poured nearly $18 million into the measure and promised to take back $7 million that had been unspent by the time the company pulled its support. The elections are coming up, and there's lots on the ballot to decide on. And here to talk with us a little bit about some of the items on the ballot is Joe Fitzgerald Rodriguez. He's a reporter at the San Francisco Examiner. Joe, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me. (laughs) I want to start by asking you about Proposition C, because this is one of those kind of messy propositions where you have to actually read it carefully to know what it's saying. Sure. If you're not paying attention to the politicking around it up until now, you might not know that it's a little bit more complicated than just a straight, yeah, I mean, ultimately you do have to decide yes or no on it, but it's a, it's a little bit complicated. And you broke a story of the big development in the saga of Proposition C. Can, can you outline what it is and um, what changed dramatically? Sure. Uh, well, um, Proposition C, which is ostensibly a ban on e-cigarettes like Juul, um, I'm sorry, is to repeal a ban on e-cigarettes like Juul, um, was, you know, big fronted by Juul and the tobacco industry. Um, and, you know, it looked like the people who had put forward that ban in the first place, trying to protect kids from a vaping epidemic, were looking at millions of dollars floating their way, uh, uh, blowing their way from the vaping industry. Um, uh. And, uh, uh, um, <laughs> but... You know, right, right in the most heated moment of this campaign, um, uh, Proposition C's backers announced, oh, we're out of this. We're done. We're folding up shop. There's another big name in this race or in the contributions to this race. Michael Bloomberg has donated also millions to the No on C campaign. Right, because, you know, Bloomberg is, you know, pushing kids public health and public health in general all across the country. You know, he was a, a, a big proponent on the sugary beverage taxes as well, which also took place here in San Francisco. But even his low millions uh, was not nearly as much as Jewel was throwing at it, which I think reached $11 million, um, before they announced the closure of their campaign. Um, so... It was definitely going to be still a very David and Goliath kind of battle. And frankly, still might be. I mean, they seeded a lot of money into the city, a lot of advertising already. So even with things stopping, there's still little things that spool out, you know, advertisements that are still around. Um, It's still not fully decided. And speaking of local money flowing into this election, I mean, Jewel is a San Francisco-based company, right? It is. It's on the waterfront. And they've had their share of turmoil, too, internally in the time that this has happened. Didn't they switch out their CEO? Yeah, they did. And that was actually linked to the um, to the uh, end in the ballot proposition fight because the new CEO said in a, in a public statement that um, he wanted a new direction for the company and maybe wanted to stop all these kind of like brawls all across the country. And so they pulled the funding. So the new CEO might represent 
I like I like tactics. Tics. And there's like a whole change in what's happening with Jewel nationwide too. Like um, there's so many now medical uh, uh, dilemmas associated with vaping that uh, the FDA has really gone real hard on Juul, and Juul is pulling all of its flavored e-cig uh, products off the market right now. Like, wow. it's huge. Like, Juul has basically imploded. Like, what's happening locally with the ballot measure on Juul, the people who were, you know, the, the campaign consultants who are local, everyone, no one could have foreseen that Juul would have imploded in such a spectacular way on the national stage. They really have just kind of just gone... And that has completely torpedoed that local campaign here. So for a voter who is a little bit out of the loop on this and is trying to figure out what the heck does this actually mean, what was the ban in place or what is the ban in place currently that Prop C seeks to overturn? Well, you know, people always refer to it as a ban, but I think it's more accurate to say it's a moratorium, right? Because it... it Essentially, the law that was passed by that that was uh, authored by City Attorney Dennis Herrera and uh, Supervisor Shimon Walton says until the FDA does a regulatory review of e-cigs and and vapes for health and safety reasons, until that review happens and it's cleared by the FDA, we don't want the we don't want uh, e-cigs and vapes can't be sold within San Francisco. Um, out of an abundance of caution for the health of of children and teens, and so, but but what that means is is if the FDA does review it and does clear it, then you can sell them in San Francisco again. So that was always baked into this quote unquote ban, and the argument that Jewel is making essentially is well we we're not going to get that FDA review so. <laughs> And that that should worry people, you know, that should worry people because the argument of their entire proposition is we're not going to get regulated by the government. We're not going to let anyone look at our product and evaluate it for health and safety. We want to sell it anyway. (laughs) So, I mean, it's a very weird argument to make, but it's not one that is on a lot of people's radars because the word ban is so much easier to say. than shorter. It's shorter. (laughs) Does ban stick in your head or does moratorium until we get federal uh, health review. With certain caveats. Read small print, please. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's one idea is stickier and one is not. But yeah. the truth is, is that it's really the latter. It's more complicated than, than folks give it credit for. I mean, what really muddies the water to my mind on this is the argument being constantly about kids when with the legislation, first of all, isn't really specific to youth, right? I mean, the moratorium is... A, a blanket moratorium, correct? It is a blanket moratorium, but the but the thing is, is that you know youth can't buy them anyways legally. Right. Um, I went to um, my own, my own junior high school <laughs> a month ago or so. Which or, one was that? At Marina Middle School on okay. Chestnut Street. <laughs> Mostly kids from the Western Edition and and from Chinatown who go there. Um, not a lot of Marina kids actually go there. They they go to private schools. <laughs> um, and and. Um, you know, I went there, and I was in my old home ec room that I remember going to and uh, uh, as a kid. And I was with a bunch of, you know, 11- and 12-year-olds who were talking about Jewel in their school. And I had a group of six of them in front of me, and they're cute as a button. And <laughs> they, these kids had made a documentary about, like, um, yeah, yeah. They made a documentary for a little local film festival that aired in Japantown about Jewel use by their peers. And... 
these kids are, you know, inhaling Juul in bathrooms before class. They're sneaking off to the local park that I grew up near, Moscone Park, to go smoke Juul under the slides. Do you smoke Juul or do you vape Juul? You vape Juul. Yeah, you vape Juul. <laughs> it's early. Whatever. <laughs> I've got coffee. <laughs> um, but they're, they, uh, uh, you know, these kids were seeing Juul, like, in every corner. They even do a thing some called nick sicking where they inhale as much drool as possible as quickly as possible to give themselves a head high um, so that they throw up and that they get kind of like a spacey feeling what? before class yeah yeah nick sicking and then they do it oh my it. god kids these days <laughs> it's wow. like the tide pods it's like the tide pods but they <laughs> <laughs> and and the and the numbers show and the and so people a lot of people ask me well if if vapes are dangerous aren't cigarettes dangerous for kids why don't we ban cigarettes too why just vapes this sounds silly and the answer to that is is that the use among teens is not nearly as high for cigarettes as it is vapes the vapes have a totally different appeal they have a tech appeal. People smoke them on Instagram videos. All these influencers um, who make do like like vape smoke tricks with lights, and it's it's very memey. It's very memey. So like, you know, there's actually like there's like seventeen to twenty percent of of uh, teens nationally have vaped. That's far higher than the smoking rates. Far 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 higher. It's gotten to the point where the FDA called it an epidemic among teens. So the reason that teens are part of this discussion and kids is because there is such a high rate of usage of vapes compared to regular cigarettes. So what I find misleading is that on all the Juul um, backed or once backed at the time backed by Juul literature, campaign literature, they encourage a vote yes on Prop C to stop teens vaping. Oh, I love it. I love it. Political, poli- just, just political doublespeak. It's everywhere. I mean, I, is I there it. is there some kind of <laughs> twisted logic there, or is that just a flat-out well, lie? Well, they, they say that their regulations do better protect kids. They are, you know, they do have some regulations that are aimed at kind of curbing things. They have, like, mechanisms by which it is uh, punishable by law to share um, to to do the practice that most kids experience, which is for an adult to buy jewel and then give it to a kid, like that becomes something that is punishable um, under the law. Who figures that out? What by what evidence do you prove that? You know, it's very. And who does it put the onus on? Yeah, exactly. It's it's just it it it's it's it kind of it's made to look like a good law to protect kids, but a lot of the stuff in there is very weak and very ill enforceable. Like, I looked at it a lot. I talked to health experts, and there's just nothing in there that's that strong. So, like, stronger age verification online, stuff like that. Like, you know, kids get around that in a second. Adults get around that in a second. You know, and even the moratorium that was passed by Walton and and Herrera is not, like, going to solve everything. You could still buy Jewel online. You could still buy Jewel in neighboring cities. You could go down to Daly City and buy it and come right back up. But all these things make it harder, right? You know, one extra bit of effort and a number of people fall off and just decide it's too too much uh, too much effort. Well, the thing with restricting sales or putting a moratorium or a ban or whatever you want to call it, however much you want to simplify the language, yeah. it just is a strange contrast to the city's 
attitude and, and legal approach to cannabis because yeah. we are seeing the proliferation of more easily accessible, like legitimized cannabis. And vaping cannabis. And vaping cannabis, right, exactly. So I'm, I'm wondering if, you know, there isn't a little bit of a disconnect there on, on the expectations of, of two different bands. Yeah, and, and you know, frankly, the, the, some of the health problems found nationally were not found in vaping e-cigs, though many were. It was vaping cannabis as well, and very often linked to, like, third-party kind of um, under-regulated vaping mechanisms that screw with your lungs. So it, it's really, you know, one, one, one thing to look out for is, like, you know, homespun vaping devices or, like, you know, not very official vaping. Like, your PAX is probably fine. You're one of the biggest vaping manufacturers in, in, in cannabis is PAX, right? So your PAX is probably fine, but the, the you know, little homespun battery and a vaping mechanism that you get in a smoke shop, I would be a little more worried about that. Now, understanding Prop D. You might remember a study that made headlines earlier this year that indicated more than half of the increase in San Francisco's traffic congestion between 2010 and 2016 can be blamed on Uber and Lyft. A county transportation authority study found that people take about 82 million trips a year on Uber and Lyft combined, and most of the drivers providing those rides are here from out of town. One city supervisor tried to take aim at Uber and Lyft with a gross receipts tax, meaning a tax on the business rather than the consumer. But after weeks of negotiations, he scrapped that proposal and went with something the companies could support. A 3.25% tax on ride fares, reduced to 1.5% for shared rides and zero emissions vehicles, paid by the consumer. That's what's on the ballot as Proposition D. Knowing the measure's history, it's maybe not surprising that Uber and Lyft not only don't oppose the tax, they actually support it. Uber bankrolled the Yes on D campaign, and Lyft also contributed money in favor of the measure. The tax is estimated to generate around $30 million a year for the city's Traffic Congestion Mitigation Fund. Around half of that will go to improving muni service, station access, and vehicles. The county's transportation authority would get the other half to improve pedestrian and bike safety. While Uber and Lyft support this measure, opposition comes from the San Francisco Libertarian and Republican parties, and from the Taxi Workers Alliance, which argues that it doesn't go far enough. For context, a city transportation task force has estimated that over the next 27 years, San Francisco will need about $22 billion to improve its public transportation, pedestrian, and bicycle infrastructure. We're continuing our 2019 election coverage with more from our conversation with Joe Fitzgerald Rodriguez, a reporter at the San Francisco Examiner. Uber and Lyft actually support this proposition. Can you talk a little <laughs> bit about what it is, and does that surprise you? It's So the tax is like a, a 3.5% ride tax, right? And this is something that people have talked about for a long time happening in San Francisco, actually taxing Uber and Lyft. Um, uh, there is a desire from some segment of San Francisco to lessen the tra traffic congestion ca caused on the roads by Uber and Lyft. And we do know that it is influenced by Uber and Lyft. Oh, right? we absolutely do. Studies from the city that show this, and I can talk about them in a sec. But um, the, the gist of it, though, is to raise roughly $30 million annually for transportation infrastructure projects and for uh, pedestrian safety and bike safety projects. Um, you can never really put this money towards what we call operating costs. Like, you can't use $30 million a year from this tax to uh, pay muni drivers. 
but you can put it towards building infrastructure that will support Muni, like, you know, uh, new red transit-only lanes or new bus stations, that kind of thing. Um, and Uber, uh, Uber and Lyft support it. And what that can tell anyone with two licks of sense is if the people being taxed support the tax, it's probably not a high enough tax to make them sweat. <laughs> and you can bet your bottom dollar they are not sweating over this. And there were tense in negotiations. Fact, yeah. In fact, Uber has put in $300,000 in support and Lyft has put in $200,000 in support. Oh, man, they're that's, sweating. I mean, for for somebody like us, that might sound like a lot of money. But for Uber and Lyft, that's kind of a joke. Yeah, no. they found some change in their in their. <laughs> Couch cushions over there on Market and Tenth Street. So why why do this? I mean, this is this just symbolic support? Like, yeah, we're we're for this. Well, this has been this this measure was put forward by Supervisor Aaron Peskin, and over the last year or so, there were some tough negotiations over this, and I covered those negotiations. There were certainly times when they were ready to say, "No, screw you, that's it, we're going forward." But one can imagine that there were some sizable threats from Uber and Lyft saying, if you make this too uh, steep, we'll come after it and we'll destroy it. We'll put our own ballot measure on and we'll counter you. Those are usually how these discussions go. Um, And, um, you know, they all came to a kumbaya moment. And you can say what you will of the negotiating prowess of either side by how, (laughs) how much Uber and Lyft were saying kumbaya. So one hope was that this tax would have served almost as a congestion tax, like a pseudo-congestion tax. But the fact that Uber and Lyft are supporting it suggests that it's not a high enough tax to really curb Uber and Lyft drivers from going out on the road. Right. I mean, and to be clear, it's not a tax on the Uber and Lyft drivers. It's a tax on the riders. And if it's not high enough to dissuade a rider from choosing ride over Muni... We can't really see, expect to see a really big effect from this, right? It's really just about raising money for infrastructure improvements. Right, exactly. And and at that point, this is the, 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 there's it's it's not really going to have a material effect on the driving we see on the road. It may just improve uh, things for muni riders or bicyclists or pedestrians. Do you have any sense of how big an effect was it thirty million is likely to have on our infrastructure? I mean, we've got massive infrastructure projects happening in transit in San Francisco, and they've been going on for years, and they cost tons of money. Uh, the Better Market Street project to improve all of Market Street and reform it as a um, uh, kind of a pedestrian plaza, and to redo the uh, the traffic lanes. Um, that's Roughly six hundred million dollars so far, um, project cost, and um, Central Subway is one point six billion dollars. Our total infrastructure need moving forward in San Francisco for transportation, uh, both in repair and creation, so far identified, is about twenty billion dollars with a B. So thirty million annually. I mean, it ain't nothing. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, this is the question I always bring up when we talk about affordable housing is because, you know, those numbers are also massive. And the question is always how big is the need actually and how much will we get for 600 million, for example, which is what's on the ballot for affordable housing this November. Right. And I mean, you break it down by how much a single unit of affordable housing costs, which is 
more than half a million dollars at this point. <laughs> and it kind of, it starts to look small, ultimately. I mean, is that also the case for transit? Oh, it's absolutely absolutely the case for transit. But, you know, there are other taxes that are being levied on Uber and Lyft, um, state taxes. Um, there was a recent state bill that passed, um, I think, last year that is going to create a, um, a small tax um, on Uber and Lyft rides to feed a um, disability fund. And that disability fund will then help Uber and Lyft pay for its very first um, fleet of vehicles to serve the wheelchair community, people who need wheelchairs that do not fold up. So there are more taxes coming to Uber and Lyft. This may actually compound and add up to a congestion tax eventually, but it won't be today. It just strikes me that there's no attempt to tax the business Uber and Lyft, like the administration of the business. It's all about the product. It's I am almost trying to call it like a sales tax rather than a tax on the business itself, right? I mean, ultimately, the consumer pays it right. rather than the highly valued company. Well, it's hard to target that highly valued company with right. a tax, right? Like, what do you do? You do payroll tax? You do something like that? Like, that's then you're targeting multiple companies, right? So it's 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 tough to target that down. You have to go after the ride, which goes after the rider in the end. In a moment, we'll wrap up our overview of the measures on the November ballot with Propositions E and F. I'm Laura Wenis, and you've been listening to Civic from the San Francisco Public Press. We'll be right back. KSFP and the San Francisco Public Press are supported by listeners like you. Learn more about our membership program and join the public press at sfpublicpress.org donate. You can make a donation online or send a check to the San Francisco Public Press, 44 Page Street, Suite 504, San Francisco, California, 94102. Thank you, and thanks to the thousands of donors who have made our work possible for 10 years. This is KSFPLP, San Francisco 102.5 FM. Welcome back to Civic. Here's what you need to know about Proposition E. Where Prop A seeks to inject money into affordable housing, Prop E seeks to streamline the process of approving it. If passed, the measure would rezone public land to allow the construction of below-market-rate housing and educator housing. That's currently not allowed on public lands. In this case, affordable housing refers to housing kept at rates affordable to people earning no more than 120% of the area median income, That's anything up to about $118,000 a year for a family of two. Educator housing refers to housing where at least one employee of the school district or city college lives. It also has income restrictions, but moves the affordability bracket up a little bit. Residents' income can range from 30 to 160% of area median income. This ballot measure is the result of a compromise between the Board of Supervisors and Mayor London Breed, who had previously been pushing competing changes to zoning law. The result is a mix of their priorities and a promise from the board to pass trailing legislation to make a few additional tweaks. Previously, supervisors wanted to make sure that a certain portion of the apartments approved under these new rules would be two- or three-bedroom units to be family-friendly. 
They're planning to back off on that with this trailing legislation. Mayor Breed also wanted to include changes to allow taller buildings, which supervisors also have promised to add on later. Aside from the zoning change, the big shift here would be in streamlining the approval process for affordable and teacher housing. And those streamlining measures don't just apply to rezoned public land, but also to large lots already zoned for residential housing, measuring at least 10,000 square feet. Affordable or educator housing developments would not be subject to something called a conditional use restriction, which requires that the Planning Commission hold a hearing on a project for it to go forward. Under the proposal, planning staff could give administrative approval to affordable and educator housing without the commission even needing to weigh in. There's also a ticking clock element. Such projects would need to be reviewed within a certain time frame, 90 to 180 days, depending on how big they are. There are a few common sense things the measure wouldn't allow. First, parks, although they're public land, would not be opened up for development. Second, no existing residential units could be demolished or replaced by affordable or educator housing. Finally, Prop F. San Francisco already has quite a few financial disclosure laws on the books when it comes to money in elections. For example, no individual can contribute more than $500 to a campaign, campaign ads have to name the top three donors to their independent political committee, and city contractors are restricted from donating to campaigns. This measure would add restrictions and requirements to campaign contributions in city elections. First, corporations are already banned from donating to campaigns. But this measure would add LLCs and LLPs, limited liability companies or partnerships, basically other types of businesses, to that list. Second, the measure would restrict contributions from people with a financial interest in pending big development projects. The magic number defining interest and big here is $5 million. You'd be barred if you're the developer of a project with construction costs of at least $5 million, or if you run a business or are an individual with an ownership interest of more than $5 million in a project. The ban is in effect when the application is filed and ends a year after the city's final decision on the project. This includes, by the way, nonprofit developers, of which the city has several. Finally, those disclaimer requirements the city already has for campaign ads would be expanded. Any ad paid for by an independent political committee would need to name that committee's top three financial contributors and how much they paid. Right now, they just have to name the top three donors, and that's only if those donors contributed more than $10,000. If Prop F is approved, the threshold for naming goes down to $5,000. It would also peel back another layer of committee naming. If any of those top contributors is a different independent political committee, the ad has to name that committee's top two donors of at least $5,000 and how much they gave. The new disclaimers would also have to be printed bigger or have to be included at the beginning of audio or video ads. The measure has support from several city legislators, former ethics and oversight officials, and oversight groups. It's opposed by the Republican Party, which argues that too many restrictions on who can give money to local campaigns has a chilling effect on political speech. Spur, the urban planning think tank, also opposes it. Its arguments include that since individual donations are already capped at $500 apiece, it's unlikely that donations from individual developers are influencing politicians at all. We're talking today with Jason McDaniel. He's an associate professor of political science at San Francisco State University. Professor McDaniel, welcome. Thank you for having me. You wanted to say something about Proposition F that I want to let you have some room to talk about. 
I should have taken the opportunity to not say anything. Uh, um, it's, it's <laughs> Here probably, we are. It's probably my least uh, uh, sort of popular position. Can you explain uh, what Proposition uh, F Proposition is? Proposition F is, is a it's a change to the uh, campaign finance laws, and it, and it's it's pushed as a kind of ethical, you know, transparency, uh, um, and I think well-meaning to try to sort of rein in the power of money in our elections. Uh, and, and voters in San Francisco are generally supportive of that kind of thing. We have a very robust campaign finance system and ethical uh, system, campaign ethics, you know, around uh, limiting donations and corporate donations and what have you into our system. It's something that people worry about a lot. And as a political scientist, you know, one of the things I've really changed my mind over, over the years looking at research is that we actually worry too much about that. I think, and I, I and uh, um, that what we've done is we've created a lot of barriers for people who want to run for office. Right, that the kinds of uh, bureaucratic and legal hoops they have to jump through makes it so that they have to hire treasurers and attorneys and other things, and, and that makes it likely that people who are not full-time sort of politicians or, or, or have the ability to run are less likely to run. And I actually think that's an important problem. Uh, um, and this is one that I think it goes even further, and I think it's going to confuse voters, right? And, and I think it will uh, create more barriers to people running for office. It will. Uh, it's it's designed to say that you know. People who are developers that have business before the city are not allowed or banned from giving contributions. Yeah. To, so to, if to they have if they have a project that the city still needs to decide on that's more worth more than five million dollars, and mm-hmm. they are restricted from donating. And it's an extension to those that have like you know contracts that the city is deciding upon or bidding for those contracts are not allowed to get involved. And I understand that kind of extension, but the thing that really bothers me is that it relies upon people knowing these kind of obscure rules and attesting on the penalty of perjury that they're eligible to give money. And I think that that is just uh, kind of bizarre. And it's a way of saying we're going to let the people themselves sort of enforce this. And so I think it sounds like it's going to be a, a more robust change. And yet it's going to place burdens on candidates and voters or people who are giving money that I think are real burdens, you know, adding an extra burden, burden that we shouldn't do. And yet it's, it's in the name of, of transparency and, 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 and clean elections. I, I, I'm going to be voting no on that. I understand most people will probably be voting yes on that. Ah, you're in alignment with the San Francisco Republican Party. Oh, am I? Oh, Jesus, thank you for you just made me the most popular person in San Francisco. <laughs> uh, uh, um, uh, but but the argument well, now does that I've heard sound. That, I'm going to change my vote. Uh, uh, no, that's not <laughs> but true. but the argument does sound like similar to their argument, which is that it will have a chilling effect on political participation. Is that what you're saying? I think it will a little bit. Uh, you know, I don't worry about that that much. I just think that it's the kind of thing that uh, it will you know burden on candidates. You know who are not most like most of them will not be Republicans. And burdens on candidates who will be worried about this and who will run afoul, and they may have a reputation for violating ethics. Uh, I think it's a, an example of taking ethical regulation of our campaign of our elections a little bit too far. And I, and I I would hope that people are a little bit careful about that. Um, but I suspect that people will vote for it because it sounds very good, and and I understand that. And I'll be I'll, that's the portion of me being really unpopular uh, in this broadcast. Uh, you actually also are in agreement with Spur on that one, mm. which um, doesn't like doesn't support Proposition F. Mm. That was Jason McDaniel. He's associate professor of political science at San Francisco State University. Those are the six measures voters will be considering on this November's ballot. You can hear more in-depth analysis, additional reporting, and candidate interviews in some races on our election guide. Go to sfpublicpress.org slash election 2019. I'm Laura Wenis. You've been listening to Civic.